0: May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. When my husband Paul and I are scanning through the TV listings looking for something we are both interested in watching, There are a handful of movies that although we have seen them multiple times before, we will tune in again anytime we find them being shown, jumping in at whatever part of the narrative it happens to be since we know the plots so well. One of these movies is The Hundred Foot Journey, which follows the Kadam family as they emigrate from Mumbai, India to Europe after their mother dies in a fire that destroys their family-owned restaurant. As they are driving through France, the brakes on their van fail outside of a small village, and they end up settling in that small community, buying a building and starting a restaurant called the Maison Mumbai. The family's new residence and business venture sits directly across the street from an upscale, Michelin-starred traditional French restaurant called La Sole Pleureur that is owned and run with exacting standards by a longtime resident of the village, Madame Mallory. Almost immediately, Madame Mallory takes issue with the new restaurant and the family who runs it. Their loud music, their gaudy and tacky decor, the way the overwhelming aromas of their food fill the air. These new neighbors are upsetting the peaceful, tranquil atmosphere that surrounds Madame Mallory's restaurant and she takes several steps to undermine their efforts. Most of what she does involves pestering the village's mayor with numerous code violation complaints, but some of her other efforts are less than honorable as she is determined to prevent these strangers and their unwelcome disruptive restaurant from succeeding. It doesn't take long for the father to see what Madame Mallory has been doing and start retaliating in kind. Soon the animosity between the two becomes very heated and their antagonism begins to negatively influence the people around them, particularly in the case of one of the chefs at Madame Mallory's restaurant, who comes to see the conflict as bigger than the simple difficulties associated with adapting to different unfamiliar neighbors and who eventually views the Kadam's family's presence and their strange practices as being a threat to the very basis of the French way of life. It takes a terrible act committed by the chef and his friends for Madame Mallory to see how what might have initially been some reasonable concerns on her part, well, they've turned into something very ugly. Something that is doing nothing but harming everyone involved. It is after she has this uncomfortable realization that Madame Mallory stops her campaign against the Kadam family and takes steps to mend what has been broken and to nurture a relationship where there has previously only been hostility and mistrust. There is more to the movie than this, but I won't share any other spoilers in the event you haven't seen it yourself. The storyline came to mind earlier this week as I read our passage from Acts where Paul and Silas come into contact and conflict with the people in Philippi. Their travels have taken them to this Roman colony where they are followed around for days by a girl who is possessed by a spirit of divination who cries out over and over. These men are slaves of the Most High God who proclaim to you a way of salvation not exactly a terrible or incorrect thing for her to say, but after listening to her shouting for far too long, Paul gets annoyed and commands the spirit to come out of the girl, which it does. This action brings angry attention as the owners of this girl realize they're going to suffer financially since they can no longer make money from the girl's lucrative fortune telling skills. The owners haul Paul and Silas off to appear before the marketplace authorities to answer for their actions. But when the owners make their charge against Paul and Silas, their stated claim isn't what you would expect. Their complaint to the authorities does not focus on their personal income loss, but instead characterizes the actions of Paul and Silas as threats to the entire city and this order. Trouble brought to the region by outsiders whose words and actions endanger the peace and stability of the entire community. This tactic works well because almost immediately the stirred up crowd joins in to attack Paul and Silas and the authorities have the men stripped, beaten, and thrown into the deepest part of the jail. What has captured my attention and my thoughts in both of these stories is how different people approach situations that they see as threatening the world that they know and circumstances that challenge their assumptions about how things ought to be. During the past two weeks in America, there have been terrible, incomprehensible deaths from gun violence in places that we assume should be free from this worry, in a grocery store, in a church, in an elementary school classroom. Not one person hearing about these violent acts is unmoved by the pointless loss of life, and each one of us, I would expect, carries at least a little bit of extra worry with us as we go about our daily routines. The thing that separates us in this, however, are our opinions about what can be done and should be done in response to this kind of brokenness in our world. There is great anger, sadness, fear, hopelessness, frustration, animosity, accusations, and suspicion that fill our reactions and influence our debates about gun violence, and in all honesty, our other debates about so many areas of our common life where it is too all too obvious that god's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven is falling short of being experienced by all people as christians we are not immune to fear and anger in these times but we are called to take these emotions and energies to work toward bring bringing wholeness and healing rather than to add to the pain and division As stated in the Catechism and the Book of Common Prayer, part of our ministry, as followers of Jesus, is to carry on Christ's work of reconciliation in the world. But how, O Lord, can this be done when the enormity of the separation between people, the depth of the hurt, and the immensity of the problems seems much too much? During these past two weeks, and really long before that, there has been a growing backlash against people offering their prayers or their thoughts and prayers in response to a public tragedy, in part because so often it's said as a throwaway statement, with little evidence that praying is even happening or any indication that the prayers lead to anything helpful. And although I have no interest in grading or evaluating someone's individual prayer life or anyone's sincerity in their offer of prayer, I do think we should all be careful that we fight against becoming overwhelmed by the enormity of everything needing our prayer, to turn our own offer to pray into something cheap and trivial, said out of obligation but nothing more, or to cause us to turn elsewhere for answers despairing that our prayers can possibly make any difference. There are certainly times for each of us when praying is more difficult than at other times, when praying can seem like wasted effort compared to doing something. But if we allow what we say and what we do to become disconnected from our relationship with the God who calls us, and instead allow our actions to be motivated solely by our fears and our self-interests, we run the risk of contributing even more pain and alienation to our communities than being part of Christ's reconciling work. But I would also strongly caution against the assumption that when we prioritize praying that our work is done once we say our amens. Going back to the catechism and the prayer book, prayer is defined as responding to God by thought and by deeds, with or without words. Although we might think of prayer as being limited to the words we say aloud or words we hold in our heads and our hearts, prayer is much more than that. There is a statement I think about often that is attributed to theologian Karl Barth, who was forced to leave Germany as a result of his actions as part of the spiritual resistance of the confessing church at the time of Hitler's rise to power. The quote is, to clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. I believe this statement is powerful for two specific reasons. First, in the assumption that prayer is where we start. It is the foundation of our lives as Christians, where we share our laments, our fears, our hopes, and our dreams with God. And second, in the expectation that prayer leads us and prepares us to take an active part in working to heal what is broken in our world. And as we see in the examples of Paul and Silas and other followers of Jesus who take their own places in this reconciling work, it is not always easy, it is not without personal risk and conflict, but it is absolutely what each of us is called to do. With the knowledge that we are not alone in this work, but that in all we do, we do with God's help. I'd like to close with a prayer also from our prayer book that seems especially appropriate to pray during this challenging season, as we search to find the ways that we are being called to be part of God's reconciling, loving, liberating life-giving work in our world. Let us pray. Almighty and eternal God, so draw our hearts to you, so guide our minds, so fill our imaginations, so control our wills, that we may be wholly yours, utterly dedicated unto you. And then use us, we pray to you as you will, and always to your glory and the welfare of your people, through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.